I'd like you to open to Colossians, the book of Colossians, in chapter 2 this morning. In the providence of the Lord, I chose this passage not having any knowledge that there was going to be um, baptisms as part of the service this morning, and so that the imagery is going to be especially powerful to us as we work through this passage of Scripture We're going to look primarily at verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, Colossians 2. But to pick it up in the context, let's go back to verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In December of 2012, some children discovered the body of a homeless man who had frozen to death under a railroad bridge in Wyoming. The man was soon identified as Timothy Gray, a long-lost relative of a reclusive heiress who had left him $19 million of her $300 million fortune. Sadly, some Christians live in a similar manner. Although indescribably wealthy in Christ, we sometimes live like we don't know that we are soon going to inherit an eternal home. We live as if we're homeless when actually in Christ we are indescribably rich in him. That is the point of the apostle here in this section in Colossians. The apostle is showing these believers how foolish it is to turn back to the law and to the philosophies of the world when they already have all that they need in Christ. He spends the first chapter of the book developing the doctrine of Jesus Christ as creator and as the image of the invisible God and as the redeemer, the one who has provided redemption for the forgiveness of sins, as the king of all, as the head of the church. He has supreme position, supreme authority. And then in chapter 2, he begins to develop more of that doctrine that because this is who Christ is, and you now as believers are in union with him by faith, that should then drastically alter the way that you live. You were once an old creature dead in sin. Now you are new in Christ. So he, he is developing this doctrine of who Christ is and then drawing us into the reality of our connection to him and showing us the practical ramifications of genuine conversion. One theologian says it this way, the emphasis in the first part is upon who Christ is, but in the second half, it's upon what he has done. 
The believer thus can identify himself with his redemptive work as well as with his redeeming person. So that brings us to the big idea this morning, the main idea of this passage, which is this. At conversion, the Spirit permanently unites the believer to Christ. This new identity includes sharing in the redemptive work of the triumphant Savior and coming King. So at the moment of salvation, at the moment of conversion, when we come to Christ and we are made new creatures in him, we are permanently united to Christ. And his death becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. This is our new identity, and this new identity in Christ takes precedence over every other kind of identity we may wish to have for ourselves or that God has ordained for us. This is the true identity of the believer. And so if you look at the verses that we already um, read together, Paul is saying, therefore, as you received Christ, how do we receive Christ? As Lord, so walk in him. We receive Christ by faith. We receive him as Lord, as Savior. We then are to be rooted and built up in him, and that is a big part of why the local church exists, that we cannot faithfully live for Christ independently of relationships with one another, whereby we are helping one another become rooted and built up in Christ. And as we are established in the faith, then we are abounding in thanksgiving, and we are prepared then to face the worldly philosophies that are constantly assaulting us. And so we then are prepared to stand against these philosophies that Paul was concerned the believers were being held captive by. Because in him, look at verse 9, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ, fully God, fully man, together. And because of our faith in him, we are united to him. And therefore, verse 10, you have been filled in him. You are filled in him. You are full in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. So we are complete in Christ. And then in verses 11 through 15, the apostle talks about the results of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So we are united with Christ. We receive our identity from him. In him we are complete, but in him we also take part in the benefits of his redemptive work. And these results of redemption are true for every sinner who has been born again by the Spirit of God, who has experienced conversion to Christ. The indwelling Spirit of God has filled to full every true believer, and therefore our union with Christ results in spiritual completeness before God, in our position before God. We are spiritually complete. In our experience, that still has to be worked out in our daily lives. But as far as who we are in Christ and are standing before God, we are spiritually complete. And now the goal is to learn to live in light of that, to practice our position in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have already been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our lofty spiritual position before God in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, his merits become ours. We can't merit any 
position before God other than judgment. But in Christ, his merits become ours. We are justified before God. And now Paul moves on then in verse 11. He says, in him also, in him also, in addition to your spiritually complete, full position before God in Christ, there are redemptive works, benefits of the redemptive work of Christ that also belong to you by virtue of your union with him. We share in his redemptive work. And the apostle draws our attention to five works of Christ that are true for the believer. Number one, your old nature was cut away as the controlling force of your life, and Christ created in you a new man. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here the apostle is using physical circumcision as an illustration of what God does spiritually at the moment of our conversion. In the churches of Galatia, they were being influenced and hindered by a number of false teachers. Some of them were Jewish false teachers who, who were basically saying to these Gentile believers that they, they can be saved, they can be a part of God's covenant people, but if they want to be really saved, then they also need to be circumcised. They also need to become Jewish in practice. But this is a misunderstanding of what Christ has accomplished for us and how he makes us into a new people. In Galatians 5, we read this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul goes on, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, if you add circumcision to faith for salvation, then Christ is of no advantage to you. You've moved from grace back to the law as the means by which you think you are going to be accepted by God. And so he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, he says. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So these Judaizers were trying to bring the Christians, the new believers in Galatia, and also here in Colossae as well, back under the Old Testament law as further evidence that they really belonged to the people of God. Well, it's helpful for us to understand, because Paul uses the illustration here in verse 11, it's helpful for us to understand the origin of circumcision, which is found in Genesis chapter 17, where we read this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's a very important uh, phrase there, the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, what was the whole point? The point was that physical circumcision was a reminder to Abraham that God had a new purpose for him. That he was going to be the father of a whole new generation, a whole new kind of people. And this medical procedure then was codified in the law of Moses for every Hebrew male and became the outward sign that he belonged to God's covenant people. I mean, so much so that, that any uncircumcised Jew was cut off from the people, cut off from the covenant. And that's why in, in the rest of the Bible you find that the Gentiles became known as the uncircumcision. Those who are outside of the covenant. But now what Paul is saying is that in Christ, God has circumcised the heart of every believer. And so the heart of every believer has been made new. The old has been cut off and a new creation has been made. That's his point in verse 11. In Christ... You have experienced a spiritual circumcision. The old man has been cut off, and you are now new in Christ. Uh, Richard Chin says it this way. Instead of stripping off a small piece of flesh in physical circumcision in Christ, we have had our body of flesh, that is, our sins, removed through the death of Christ. Spiritual circumcision that takes place at that moment of conversion when the old man is cut away and the new man is born, that does not eradicate the sin nature, but it does strip the power of the sin nature so that a believer does not have to obey the dictates of the flesh anymore. In other words, as believers in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to sin. We still sin. We still struggle with sin. That's clear from many different passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul's struggle in, in Romans 7, the, the promise of forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9 that's given to believers. But we don't have to sin. In other words, before we were saved, sinning was the most natural thing that we did. It was the natural disposition of our heart. We didn't even think about it. I mean, resisting God was all we knew to do. We sinned when we wanted to sin, and we even sinned when we didn't want to sin. It, that was our nature. But now, in Christ, Paul is saying, the sin nature is no longer the controlling force in our life. We are no longer under sin's dominion. That's the change that has happened. Christ has created in us a new man. Uh, turn back to Romans uh, chapter 6. You can see um, the apostle teaching this in, an, in another way. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 to 5. He's just been teaching in chapter 5 that salvation comes through grace alone, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the logical question of someone might be, what shall we say then, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if salvation is purely of grace and not works, and, and if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then why not sin more so that grace abounds more? 
And Paul says, no. No, you're, you're not thinking straight. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Perish the thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, something happened at the moment of conversion that shifted the disposition of our heart away from sin toward righteousness. And so Paul says, you're dead to sin. How can you who have died to sin still live in sin? Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That is, those who have been placed into Christ, immersed into the work of Christ? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, or if, sometimes can be better translated, since, since we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In Christ, there has been a radical change in the disposition of our heart toward God and away from sin. That's Paul's point here in verse 11. It's the sin nature, though we still battle it as believers, it is no longer the dominating, controlling force in our life. We are no longer under sin's dominion. Why? Because Christ has created in us a new man. Verse 12, there's a second work of Christ in the believer. You were united with Christ that is immersed into his body, the church. Here again, Paul uses a physical illustration of that which is truly spiritual. And so spiritual baptism is what he has in mind. So he's using the physical rite of baptism to show the spiritual work that Christ accomplishes in the heart of the believer. Having been buried, look at verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is what has happened spiritually to the believer. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus commands us to be baptized. Because it is an outward sign of something that is infinitely more important, which is spiritual baptism. Being cleansed and forgiven by God through grace, faith in the gospel, trusting in Christ and now being immersed into his body that is the church. So the moment we were saved, we became part of the body of Christ. United not only with Christ, listen, united not only with Christ, that's supreme, but also united with all who know him. And so the baptisms that we witnessed this morning were not only a physical representation of a change that has happened vertically between a sinner and God, but also horizontally. And that's why baptism is done in the context of the local church, because it also has horizontal ramifications of being not only united with Christ, but united with all other brothers and sisters who know him. It's a beautiful picture 
of something that is spiritually extremely significant. So when we get saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. That is, he immerses us in the fullness of the redemptive work of Jesus on our behalf. And so at conversion, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we were raised to new life with Christ. So the obedience of water baptism is a picture an outward, visible picture of an invisible inner reality. A great change that God has made in our hearts. So Paul's saying to these believers, you have been immersed in Christ. And this is true of every believer. The Holy Spirit has done this for every believer. Sometimes you might hear uh, Pentecostal or charismatic Christians say something like this. Well, yes, I understand that you believe in Jesus, but have you also been baptized in the Holy Spirit? In other words, have you received the second blessing? Have you received the Spirit? And yet the Scriptures are very simple and very clear that every believer in Jesus Christ has received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, not some, all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, when it comes to our relationship with the Holy Spirit, it's not, do you have all of the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? That's the issue. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the believer is not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to be controlled by outward substances, but to be controlled and led by the inner reality of the person of Jesus, of, of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit that Jesus promised in John 14 and John 16 to send to us. So the moment we got saved, we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and united with the body of Christ, immersed into the body of Christ. And so it's not about praying, God, 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 give me more, more, more of the Spirit. It's, Lord, cause me to be humble and submissive to your word that the Spirit of God who already lives in me may have more of me. The question is not, do you as a believer have all of the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? Are you living and walking in submission to the Word of God? Now, that's a challenge for all of us because none of us is completely sanctified yet. That'll take place when we see the Lord Jesus, when we are glorified. Until then, there's going to be this struggle inside of us, but it's, it's not a struggle to get more of something that we think we're lacking. We have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. We will never be able to stand before God and say, well, I would have been a better Christian if you would have given me more of this. Oh, if I just would have had more of the Holy Spirit, I would have been a better Christian. We already have everything we need in Christ. That's Paul's point. We are spiritually complete in Christ. Now, the challenge is, are we going to live that out? How are we going to live that out? You have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I mean, just ponder that for a moment. The same resurrection power, the same power of God 
that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that you and I have been united to in our union with Christ. That same Holy Spirit of God lives inside of each of us as believers. That's amazing. There's a third work of Christ in the believer, verse 13. You were made alive, regenerated in your spirit. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, why would we need to be made alive? Well, we need to be made alive by God through the gospel because we are born spiritually dead. You were dead, it says, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Before Christ, we were spiritually dead, and our spiritual heart was crusted over with every mark of death deadness and yet god used the gospel to make us alive in christ faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ the gospel is the instrument by which god gives birth to saving faith within us and this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. That's what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3, which is a passage of scripture that the Lord used to save me 40 years ago, this time of year. I still can't believe it. In a, in a Bible study in the Gospel of John, and the Lord is just opening my eyes and opening my eyes and peeling back the layers of, of hardness from my heart and opening the blinds to let a little more light in. And we get to chapter 3, and I see myself in the, the super externally righteous Pharisee of Nicodemus, but utterly corrupt in heart. And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You can't see the Spirit of God, and you can't see him doing his work, but you can see the results of him doing his work. You can't see the wind, Jesus says, but you can see what the wind does. You can see the trees bending, but you can't see the wind itself. And so it is with the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Every one of us who is breathing this morning here at the chapel, which is all of us, um, <laughs> I trust, um, we were born of the flesh. Born of the flesh, that means that's what we are, we're flesh. We were born the first time, that's why we're here. Question is, have we been born a second time. Have we experienced the second birth? Conversion. New life in Christ. Whereby the works of Christ that we are seeing in this passage have become ours. And so much so that though we can't see the Spirit of God... We can see how he has changed us and is still changing us. And that ought to bring great encouragement to us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says, but God made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that we are saved 
through faith. This is a faith that then produces change. You know, there are times I I feel sorry for Ephesians 2.10 because I think it's one of the most neglected verses of the Bible. Many of us have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we are saved by grace for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works lest any man should boast and we stop there and we forget verse 10 which says for, which is a connecting word, for we are his workmanship created, or I like to say recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I was raised in a works religion, which taught me that, that my good works were the horse that pulled the wagon of salvation. Scripture teaches the opposite. Salvation by grace is the horse that pulls the wagon of good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation. Good works are the fruit of our salvation. Paul's saying, you were dead, but God has made you alive. God has made you alive. He's put spiritual life within you together with Christ. So at the moment of salvation, God gives us a new heart. He recreates within us an entirely new disposition of heart toward God and toward his word. I've been reading a new 366-day devotional um, collected from the works of Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor from the 1600s. And he wrote these words about the change that God brings about in our hearts. He says, where God intends to do any good, he first works in the heart a gracious disposition. So he changes the heart. After which he looks upon his own work as upon a lovely object. And he does give them other blessings. Now in a tender heart, these three properties concur. It is sensible. It is pliable. It is yielding. A tender heart is always a sensible heart. A tender heart is pliable and yielding. A tender heart so soon as the word is spoken yields to it. It quakes at its warnings, obeys precepts, melts at promises, and the promises sweeten the heart. But the hardness of heart is the opposite. It will not yield to the touch. Such a heart may be broken in pieces, but it will not receive any impression. A hard heart is like a stone to God or goodness. It is not yielding, but resists and repels all that is good. You may break it into pieces, but it is unframable for any service. On the contrary, a melting and tender heart is sensible, yielding, and fit for any service both to God and man. At the moment of salvation, this is what God does within us. He changes us. He changes our heart. I was a 19-year-old religious man with a hard heart and trapped in a lifestyle of sin. And God 
in his grace brought the gospel into my ears and into my heart whereby the Holy Spirit gave birth to saving faith. And I was born again, not by my doing, but by the doing of God. God is the one who did that and changed that hard heart of stone to a soft heart of wanting to do his will, wanting to live for him, wanting to obey him, not something I ever had before. I didn't wake up that morning smarter than I was the day before. That, oh, this makes sense. I should just go to Jesus. That's the logical thing to do. God awakened in me new life. That's what God does at the moment of conversion. In Christ, we are made alive. We are given a new heart that is submissive to the indwelling spirit of God. Forty years later, I'm still growing in what that submission looks like. How to live more and more in submission to God and his word and the spirit of God. But this is the redemptive work of Christ that all true believers share in. We've been made alive by Christ and in Christ. And there's a fourth work that is ours as well. Verse 14. You were forgiven. Your sin debt was fully paid by the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Trespasses are violations of God's law. We've all broken God's law more times than we know and more times than we could even count. We have been forgiven these trespasses. How? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, Jesus took upon himself the penalty for my disobedience of God's law, for your disobedience of God's law. Jesus took on himself the penalty for that. He assumed the curse of the law in our place. And we who deserve to be cursed are set free by the one who was cursed in our place. The word forgive is part of the word family in the New Testament from which we get the word grace. And I think that's really important for us to remember. Forgiveness is a product of grace. Look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's something we already have. Now, when I was a boy, uh, I had to confess my sins to a priest and then he told me what to do so that I could get forgiveness. And when I came to know Jesus and came to understand that Jesus is my priest, Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, and that when I trust in him, he completely forgives me. That was life-altering in massive ways. Look at how our forgiveness is described. He erased our sin debt, canceling the record of debt. As the old hymn says, I had a debt I could not pay. 
He paid the debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. He canceled the record of debt, Paul says. And he removed the bill that formed a barrier between us and God. What was the bill? The bill was the law. The law is like a hounding bill collector demanding payment. And Jesus, through his death, has, has forever silenced the bill collector because he already fulfilled the law. He already paid our debt. So when you struggle feeling forgiven, go back to what Scripture says. Renew your mind with the truth of God's Word and the completeness of God's forgiveness in Christ. And he nailed the bill to the cross. See, the judgment of the law against us died with Christ. He set it aside, what? Nailing it to the cross. The judgment of God's law against us was nailed to the cross through the flesh of Jesus Christ. And we are forgiven. The debt is paid in full. Finally, look at number five, the fifth work that is now ours. You entered the victory of Christ and will share in his ultimate triumph. Christ disarmed the rules and authority, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. One of the errors in the churches of, of Colossae was angel worship. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, Jesus is supreme in authority. He is he is in authority over the good angels. He is in authority over the evil angels, the devils, Satan, and all of the fallen angels. We learn in chapter 1 and verse 13 that Jesus has already dealt the death blow to Satan and the demonic realm. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. So we share in his triumph, verse 15. By virtue of our union with Christ, we share in the ultimate victory and triumph of Christ. I love that old song, Victory in Jesus. What a great reminder. That is our victory. So Paul, throughout this whole passage, is saying to us, you are complete in Christ. This is your new identity. And knowing this and acting on these truths enables you to live out in real time what you already are in position before God in the heavenlies. You see, understanding who we are in Christ affects every area of our life. And that's how Paul is drawing these believers back away from their infatuation with legalism and worldly philosophies. He pulls them back from all of that to say, you are something new in Christ. In light of all this, Richard Chin asks some penetrating questions. Why would anyone turn to the elements of the world? For how can we surpass being in Christ? How can the world offer anything that exceeds dying with Christ and being raised with Christ? 
We cannot experience Christ more fully, and we cannot outstrip being in Christ because, listen, all of God's fullness dwells in him, and we have been filled in Christ. And then he asks one final question. Why would you embrace any world view that leaves this Jesus out of the picture? Why? We are complete in Christ and we share in all of his works in union with him. This is who we are. And now the challenge is to live out who we already are. Father, help us. We thank you and praise you for the incredible riches that belong to us in Jesus Christ. We who are sinners, who are worthy of condemnation, we're worthy of the eternal death that the scriptures give to all those who are outside of Christ. We are worthy of that. And yet, we who are here today, who know the Lord Jesus, are basking in your grace. For who but an immensely gracious and merciful God would do such a thing for sinners like us? Lord, may you take your word and speak it deeply into each of our hearts. And Father, I pray that if there is any man, woman, boy or girl here today who has not yet come to that new life in Jesus, oh, would you so woo them, woo their heart with your love. Draw them. Cause them to see the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus for them and move in their wills this very day to turn away from sin and turn to this gracious Jesus who holds his arms out wide open to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon me. Let me carry the yoke of your sin for you. Father, bring anyone here today to that place that they might find Christ and be found by him. Glorify your name, Lord, in the rest of our worship. Through Christ we pray, amen.